All morning long I have felt the Spirit, a gentle, sweet manifestation of the Spirit. And I, I, what I'd like us to do is just take a few minutes and soak that in. I'd like us to take a few minutes. And what I'd like you to do is bow your heads, close your eyes. And I'd like you to invite the Spirit to speak to you this morning. And I want you, before we proceed into this sermon, I want you to just offer up to Him the thing that weighs heaviest on your heart. It doesn't have to be about yourself. It can be about someone half a world away. But I want you, let's just take a moment or two and do that. I want you to listen for a word from the Spirit now. As you offer things up, listen and see what He gives you. Holy Spirit, thank you for meeting with us here today in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father. Lord, thank you that right now you're touching some people with peace. Right now, some people are experiencing your love at a deeper level. Right now, Lord, some people are being guided by you. And right now, Lord, some people are being convicted by you. Thank you, Lord, that your presence is here. And I pray you will anoint your word. And you will anoint us to hear your word, and your name will be glorified, and help us to hold dear to our hearts what you have given us this day. In your name we ask it. Amen. Today is the second sermon in the series on Exodus, and I'm reading from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 
And it says this, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses was born into a world of desperate conditions. His people were the objects of brutal oppression. The official policy of the government was slavery and then genocide to all male Hebrew babies. They were to be cast into the Nile and drowned. Into this, Moses was born. He too was to be cast into Egypt's great river. He too was to be exterminated. But his parents disobeyed Egyptian law. When Moses was born, it said they hid him for three months, risking their own lives for his. And part of the reason they risked their lives was because, as it says in Scripture, he was a fine child. The literal Hebrew means he was a beautiful baby. You know, all babies are beautiful, except for a few I've seen. And, uh, but M Moses' parents could not part with such a beautiful example of God's handiwork. I really wish more people felt that way in our modern world. After three months, it says they could hide him no longer. Probably this was because even among the Hebrews, there were no doubt informers. Rats, people who work for the Egyptians. So Moses' parents concocted a plan. They would take Moses down to the Nile, just as Pharaoh had decreed. But they would put him in a basket sealed with tar and pitch and place that basket carefully among the reeds near where the princess of Egypt bathed regularly. They placed the basket where Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage could not miss it. The plan went perfectly. The princess of Egypt saw the basket and had it brought to her. And lo and behold, there was a baby in it. He was crying. It touched her heart. Yet immediately she recognized it was a Hebrew baby. What was going to happen? At this point, Miriam, Moses' older sister, speaks up. Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? No doubt the suggestion by Miriam was part of the plan too. I'm sure she was coached on how to say it and not sound excited or give away her connection to her little brother. Yes, said the princess, that sounds good, go. So Marion went and retrieved Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and her mother too. I'm sure Jochebed was conveniently close. And she too probably had to practice restraining her emotions or revealing any connection to this baby. Pharaoh's daughter said to Jochebed, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Imagine that. 
Jochebed not only gets her child back from the edge of the grave, but now he is officially under the watch and protection of the Egyptian government. And she, a lowly slave, gets paid to nurture and raise her own son. Wow. She got to nurse him until he was weaned. And in those days, that was probably three or four years of age. Plus, there seems to be some added years after that. It says he grew older. This time in Moses' life, the time he was raised by his real parents, was critical. It was during that time Moses fell in love with his own people. It was during that time Moses learned of and became touched by the faith of his fathers. Is where he heard the stories of Yahweh and his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's where he heard about how Joseph got them down there to begin with. It was during this time Moses saw people oppressed and saw it from the oppressed side of things before he saw it from the oppressor's side of things, which was critical in what was going to happen. What happens in our early childhood years is so important, isn't it? Seeds are sown that last a lifetime, even if they are forgotten a while during adolescence. Teach your children the stories of the faith. Sow the seeds of faith into their hearts. You are your child's first priest. You are your child's first intercessor. You are your child's first teacher. Tell them the stories of your faith and how Christ has affected your life. At one point in time, Tony Shearsher from this church who now lives in Arizona, he was in prison. And he was a witness, a vibrant witness for Christ in those prisons. And he said, there was a world of difference between talking to someone about Christ who had a little spiritual education and those who had none. He said if someone had even gone to church a little bit or was raised in a Christian family before they rejected the faith, he said talking to them about Jesus was so much easier than in prison than those who had no spiritual background at all. He could water the seeds. He could fertilize them. Things came up. It was much easier than trying to plant seeds in hard hearts. It makes a world of difference what you do with your children now. The other lesson, another lesson that jumps out of me in this chapter is that there is no tension between careful planning and exercising deep faith. Moses' family did what they could. They thought through every step of the way of what they were going to do to save Moses' life. This story tells us that faith is not simply sitting back, doing nothing, and hoping for the best. Jesus said, be wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves. God, I have found, is not a big fan of stupid. You know, you can take pills for everything. You can't take a pill for stupid. Nor is he for lazy. Think, plan, learn how God thinks and put into practice what you learn. We are not to be passive and do nothing in the name of faith. Learn how to manage your money God's way. Then trust that God will get you some money. If you need a job, rattle all, all the doors you can and then ask God to open the right door. But make sure you rattle them. Plan for retirement and trust that God will get you there. We have to do our part. There is a reason God gave us something between our ears. Moses' family planned 
and they executed that plan perfectly. Faith and planning go hand in hand. But even then, they still had no idea what the princess would do. What would an Egyptian princess do with a Hebrew child? They couldn't control that. Only God can control that. Would she be loyal to her father? Or would she help a helpless baby? Only God could put love in a heart for a Hebrew baby in Pharaoh's daughter's heart. Only God could give her the courage to defy her own father's edicts. Only God could make an Egyptian princess say, one day this child will be my son and one day he will be a prince of Egypt. That is a miracle. I don't know if you got that. Jochebed and her husband did their part. They planned. They executed the plan. And then God did his part. That is part of the partnership. Another lesson we draw from this scripture is how God undermines Pharaoh's plans. He uses the most unlikely people to outsmart the most educated ones. Have you noticed that theme? He uses slaves and women slaves at that to undo the power of an empire. He even uses Pharaoh's own daughter to undermine Pharaoh's will. God works time and again through people who have no obvious power. God uses the weak and despised to shame the strong and the mighty. It is women and slaves who stand against Pharaoh's policies and undermine them. It is women and slaves who undermine unjust laws and practice civil disobedience. God uses weapons that are not made in factories or stored in arsenals. He uses people crazy enough to believe in him and risk their lives for him to undo the powers and oppressors of this world. It reminds me of the city in Denmark in World War II that was ordered to put the Star of David on all the Jews in their city so they could be arrested and sent to concentration camps. The mayor of that city, I believe was a Christian, knew he could not send thousands of Jews to their deaths. He also knew he could not fight the Nazis with guns and bullets. That was suicide. So what, he, what did he do? He asked every citizen in that city, Jew or Christian or agnostic, to wear the Star of David. Everyone. And they did. And the Nazis could not identify who the true Jews were, and so they gave up looking. All the Jews in that city survived the Holocaust. All of them. Because Christians decided to wear the Star of David with Jews. People often ask me as an Anabaptist and a pacifist, what would you do about Hitler? I would do something like what that mayor did. By God's grace, I would practice civil disobedience. And with God's wisdom, I would try to find out ways to undermine and outsmart them. Just like the two Hebrew midwives did in chapter 1. Remember they outsmarted Pharaoh? They said, we can't get to these babies in time. They're popping out all over. Or Moses' family here in chapter 2. And if I couldn't outsmart and undermine some oppressor, I would die trying. In which case, I would see my God in heaven, and that's not such a bad thing either. Brothers and sisters, we're supposed to bet our lives on the resurrection anyway, aren't we? 
We're not supposed to be afraid. Why are so many American Christians afraid to die? Don't we believe in heaven? Aren't we supposed to be dead already? And you know, we, here's the other problem. We think armies and bombs undo evil. They don't. It is the armor of God, the armory of God. Faith and truth and love and creative peacemaking and courage that defeats evil. Armies and bombs and guns, I'm going to tell you something, will not defeat Al-Qaeda and they will not defeat ISIS. Certainly not in the long run. Truth and love and the Spirit of God and the gospel will because we are in a war for hearts and minds, and the use of guns and bombs does little to change hearts and minds. In fact, what I've discovered is they harden them. They make more enemies than they destroy. Have you noticed? The more we bomb the Middle East, the more enemies we have. Shouldn't we go, wait a minute, this is backfiring. And the fourth lesson in these verses is this. It shows us how God works in profound ways, often without us knowing it. Did you notice that in these first 10 verses, God's hand is at work and it is not obvious at all. He is behind the scenes. He is at work in the ordinary. In fact, in these verses, God's, these first 10 verses of chapter 2, God's name never comes up once. He is quietly orchestrating all that is happening. He is behind all the human action we see going on. Be careful when you think God is absent. He might just be doing more than you dream right in front of your nose and you do not recognize it. Our God can do great and obvious miracles. We're about to read about them in Exodus. Red seas parting, manna from heaven, ten plagues. But our God can also do quiet, subversive miracles too, can't he? Often God's work is real, but it is not apparent to the naked eye. As Christians, we believe God's presence and power is all around us, operating in all kinds of situations. And our call is to be alert and continually receptive to what the Spirit may be up to. Faith assumes God is here and He is at work now. Each day offers us an opportunity to join with the Spirit in what He is doing. And please hear this. Most of the ways God will ask us to join Him will be small and in the ordinary. We are given all kinds of opportunities every day to do small acts of kindness, gentle words of encouragement, acts of generosity. There are divine moments of opportunity around all of us every day. I know a lot of people who say, well, you know, when, when I get my act together, God will use me or God will meet me when. Let me tell you something. God meets us in the ordinary right now every day. It's the only time we've got to meet him, by the way. Here, now. I can't meet God from 10 years ago. I can't meet God 10 years down the road. The only chance I have to walk with the Spirit is right now in the Spirit. Are you looking with the eyes of faith? 
because you were invited every day to make your life, life count by getting in the flow of the Holy Spirit and seeing the opportunities the Spirit sees. One pastor tells the story. He was reading the paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, about a metro transit operator named Linda Wilson Allen. For the most of us, in San Francisco, it's a metro transit operator. In Harrisburg, it's a bus driver. She loves Linda, loves the people who ride her bus. She knows the regulars by name. She'll wait on them if they're half a block away, if they're late. How many bus drivers do that? One day she saw a woman in her 80s named Ivy carrying heavy grocery bags. She pulled the bus over. She got out of the bus driver's seat and helped Ivy put grocery bags onto the bus. Now Ivy lets other buses pass her stop so she can ride on Linda's bus. Linda saw a woman named Tanya in a bus shelter. She could tell Tanya was new to the area. She could tell she was lost. It was almost Thanksgiving, so Linda said to Tanya, you're out here all by yourself. Why, you don't know anybody? Come over to my house for Thanksgiving and kick it with me and the kids. Now they are lifelong friends. The reporter who wrote the article rides Linda's bus every day. He said Linda has built such a little community of blessing on that bus that passengers offer Linda the use of their vacation homes. I don't know who rides the bus. I don't know many people ride the bus that have vacation homes, but it happens in San Francisco. <laughs> they bring her potted plants and floral bouquets, which, by the way, you can bring me every Sunday. I'll give them to my wife. <laughs> Make man points. When people found out she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniforms, they started giving them as presents to Linda. One passenger upgraded her gift to a fur collar. The article says Linda may be the most beloved bus driver since Ralph Cramden on the Honeymooners. How many of you know who Ralph Cramden and the Honeymooners are? We, some of you are old. And think about what a thankless task driving a bus can look like in our world. Cranky, rushed passengers, engine breakdowns, constant traffic jams, gums on the seat or gums on your shoe. And you have to ask yourself, how does she have this attitude? And she says, here's how I have this attitude. She gets up at 2.30 a.m. every day, and she gets down on her knees and she starts praying. She says, there's a lot to talk about with the Lord. And when she gets to the end of her line, she always says to her passengers, I love you. Take care. Have you ever heard a bus driver tell you, I love you? People wonder, this pastor says, where can I find the kingdom of God? And he says, I'll tell you where. You can find it on bus number 45 riding through San Francisco. People wonder, where can I find the church alive? And he says, I'll tell you, behind the wheel of a metro transit vehicle. He said, we invited Linda to speak at our church. We had people from Silicon Valley there, rich people, and who heard her story and gave her standing ovations by a woman who drives a bus. 
They stood in line by the dozens afterward to talk to her. Why? Because this woman drives the bus in the spirit. This woman has God on her job. This woman has Jesus on her route. For the door on the number 45 bus, when it opens, it's not just for a seat and for a ride. It is an invitation into the kingdom of God with the kingdom of God's representative behind the wheel. That is what we're called to do. God is at work all around us. And most of it will be in unspectacular, ordinary ways we consider small. But I need you to hear this. In the kingdom of God, you never disregard small. Jennifer Dean writes, think of something big, a mountain, a tree. Get a mental picture of something you call big. Now consider that it is made up of tiny, tiny atoms. Atoms are made up of even tinier neutrons and protons. And neutrons and protons are made up of elements so small they cannot be seen with the strongest microscope. There is no such thing as big, she writes. Everything we call big is just a whole lot of small. Small upon small upon small finally equals big. There is no big without lots and lots of small. Nature as God created it is the image of the invisible kingdom of heaven. In kingdom living, small matters. Small is the key to big. It's like what Mother Teresa used to advise people. She said, do not try to do great things for God, but do small things for God with great love. Small is the new big. Besides that, Jesus said, small is where we are formed as persons. Small trains us. Before you lead Israel across the Red Sea into the Promised Land, First, you get to lead sheep to water in the desert. Before you kill a giant and rout the Philistine army, you get to practice on bears and lions. Before you save the world, you wash feet the night before. Jesus said, if you're faithful in small things, I'll give you bigger stuff to handle because then, then you'll be ready. What is in front of you now? where the Spirit is telling you, make a difference. At home, at work, in school, in the neighborhood, where is God working in front of you and He wants you to join Him? If you want to experience more of the Spirit, then train yourself to look for and respond to moments of divine opportunity all around you. If I'm standing in the line at a grocery store, I can stand there tapping my foot impatiently, or I can talk and converse in a friendly manner with the people around me, or if not that, at least I can do silent prayers for the people in that line. I can try to change the atmosphere in that line as I see people in that line as people Jesus Christ loves, not people who are in my way. I can see interruptions as divine appointments. When I was at Eastern Mennonite Seminary, the college chaplain told me that the main way students related to him was that he kept bumping into them accidentally in the hall or at the water fountain or at the quad. He told me this. He said, I have discovered 
that the worst place for me to be is in my office if I want to relate to these kids. He said, interruptions are my ministry. If I want these kids to make an appointment, I'll never talk to most of the kids I talk to. Jesus' ministry was filled with divine interruptions. Jesus' ministry would have looked very different if he had never allowed himself to be interrupted. Many of his greatest miracles was because he let a blind man named Bartimaeus interfere with his plans. Or a woman with an issue of blood touch him and then he stopped everything to converse with her. Or one day he was walking down the street going this way and suddenly he saw a man named Zacchaeus up in a tree and he said, stop everything. Zacchaeus, we have a divine appointment here. Or lepers who begged for mercy, who stopped him in his tracks. Jesus let people interrupt him all the time and he used those moments for God to work. Invite the Spirit into the ordinary of your life. Instead of getting angry and saying something you'll regret later, why don't you invite Jesus right into the middle of the anger and listen to the Spirit? Instead of you interrupting somebody else, let the Spirit interrupt you. When you feel a nudge to call somebody or text somebody. By the way, I, I need to stop here and say I have learned not only to do email, but uh, I'm doing face thing. <laughs> I'm doing face thing. I know. FaceTime. Yeah. See, I'm master of it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I've actually learned how to text. I just want you to know I'm evolving. I'm a deeper person. I decided to enter the 21st century. But when you feel nudged to call or text a friend, Stop and listen to the Spirit and do it. When you're in a restaurant and you feel compassion for your waiter, sometimes waiters, I don't know how they do it, and sometimes they have language issues. Listen to the Spirit. Pray for that person. Encourage that person. Express what the Spirit wants expressed to that person. Be open to the moments where we meet God in the everyday. Jesus did. Jesus continually saw his father at work all around him. You, go, you may be going, well, how do we how do, we do this? Let, let me get, recommend a simple prayer for the morning. When you get up in the morning, look ahead into your day. What do you anticipate? What do you anticipate is going to be hard? Invite Christ to be there waiting for you. And ask him to help you sense when you reach that moment. Ask God to, to, to move your spirit when a divine opportunity comes. Ask Him to help you not to miss Him at work this day in your life. Start the day by asking Him to make you sensitive to Him. Ask Him to fill you with His Spirit as you begin the day to help you tune in right from the start and help you not tune out all day long. Try that. Invite the Spirit into your life. And God will do miracles because you never know what God will use. Big, small, dumb, smart. Chuck Colson was arrested, humiliated, and shipped into prison. 
and there he found doors opening to prison ministry that would have never opened up to him when he was in the White House. He wouldn't have been interested when he was in the White House. And he created a worldwide prison ministry that now has far outlived his death and is global and has changed literally the lives of tens and tens of thousands of people who are in prison for the kingdom of God. Helen Keller faced severe disabilities. Yet, a door was opened to her precisely because of her disabilities to help untold millions. How many blind people or deaf people have been helped because of her example? A Sunday school teacher named Rosa Parks was told to sit in the back of the bus, and her quiet refusal and civil disobedience pricked the conscience of this nation and started a movement that still echoes until now. God has used humiliation, imprisonment, blindness, deafness. He's even used something as a simple no by an obscure black woman on an obscure bus in Birmingham. He's used all of these things to change the world. God can use anything. I... I, I haven't told this story since we've been in this building, which has been 10 years. The old-timers know this story. But a lot of you are not old-timers. But uh, years and years ago, when we were in our old church facility, uh, we had a service. And uh, in that service, I met a new family. They seemed to like the service. They seemed to like, you know, the preaching and uh, they weren't around long enough to know better. And, uh, and so I thought, fine, I hope they come back. The next day I went to play golf at the Range Inn Country Club in Dillsburg. And while I was there on the fifth hole, I hit a ball, my ball, into a sand trap. And then I hit it into that sand trap again and again and again. And this may shock some of you, but I... I lost my temper, and I took the golf club, and I threw it as far as I could throw it, and then I was standing in the sand trap, and I began to just kick the sand because the sand was not my friend, and I screamed I, at the top of I just went, ah, and I noticed in the adjacent fairway coming at me were two guys in a golf cart. And they were laughing uproariously. And as I got closer, I saw one of them point at me and he went, Yeah, that's the guy I heard preaching yesterday. <laughs> and I thought, uh, Man, I got to be more careful. <laughs> I feel that way in a car, too. <laughs> and so uh, I thought to myself, Well, that's that. We'll never see them again. And the next Sunday, to my shock, this family came back to church. And I couldn't help but ask. I, I, I saw them after, and I said, I've got to ask you a question, and please don't take this the wrong way. But why are you here? <laughs> why are you here? And he said, I came from a megachurch that was highly programmed, and, and the pastor was slick and sophisticated, and I got tired of that. And he said, obviously, you are none of those things. <laughs> You, you are the opposite of slick and sophisticated. And they came to church. Brothers and sisters, God can use anything. 
He can use Chuck Colson in prison. He is so gracious and powerful and merciful, he can use a hissy fit on a golf course by a preacher that ought to know better. And by the way, since then I have been sanctified. I do not throw golf clubs and yell anymore. I just mutter under my breath. And I also need to add this. I, I now play golf not for fun. I play golf to witness to other golfers. And it helps my spiritual life too. Because I cry out to the Lord a lot on a golf course. But apparently Jesus doesn't care for golf. So anyway, but it helps. God can use anything Look at what he did in today's story. Yahweh caused a member of Pharaoh's family to defy his decree and adopt a child slated for termination. He got an Egyptian princess to listen to the advice of a lowly Hebrew slave girl. He caused the slave mother of Moses to get paid for what she most wanted to do in this world, nurture her own child. He caused Moses to be grounded in the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then become the prince of Egypt. He caused a pagan woman, an Egyptian princess, to name a baby with a prophetically accurate name, Moses, the one who comes out of the water, the one who came out of the Nile, who would one day lead a whole nation through the Nile and up. Look at all the things the world would have seen. For these first 10 verses, the world would have seen nothing particularly spectacular. It would have seemed somewhat commonplace, or at the most, they would have said, what a coincidence. One day, 3,200 years ago, the world changed, and no one knew it. Because God does things only the eye of faith can see, and sometimes that's after the fact. But that day, that day, With no obvious miracles, the deliverer of Israel was delivered. The first part of God's plan to set Israel free was completed. And God's main weapons were the oppressed and slaves and women and ordinary people who did the right thing while practicing their faith. And guess what? We have the same invitation We can do the same. And who knows what the outcome will be when God multiplies our efforts. Because remember, small is the new big in the kingdom of God. Remember, small is the new big in Jesus' hands. Small is the new big when the Spirit multiplies it. Do you know that? We need to understand that the world is not going to change because there's a Billy Graham. Even though he's the greatest evangelist that ever lived, Billy Graham can't save the world. Doctors, preachers, evangelists, they have their part to play in the kingdom, but the world will not be saved because of preachers and evangelists. The world will be saved by millions and millions and millions of Christians Walking in the Spirit in the ordinary days of their lives. Being salt and light. Being yeast and leaven. Remember what Jesus said? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. 
It starts tiny, tiny, tiny. But before it's over with, it's big enough for the birds of the air to rest on it. Remember what he said about yeast? He said it just takes a little bit of yeast, but before it's over, it's leavened the whole lump. Remember what he said about salt? You know, when you put salt on it, you don't see salt, but you taste it. It changes the flavor of everything. But all of these things start small and in the ordinary. If millions of Christians, God, please hear this, God has placed you where you are. You have a network, a social network no one else has. You have contact with family that no one else has. You have contacts on your job that no one else has. God has put you there to witness to His glory. And the way you witness is you pray and you walk in the Spirit and you do good works. And when the door opens, you share the gospel. You are the ones that change the world. I cannot save the world. Nobody can. The professional clergy cannot. It is a billion Christians in this world who can do it. Don't underestimate small. Because small is the new big in the kingdom. Can you do small? Can you do ordinary? Can you love the people right in front of you? Can you be delightfully different to the, where you are? Can, you can walk in the Spirit. You see, when we talk about walking in the Spirit, we talk about, you know, I must have visions and dreams and miracles. Walking in the Spirit 99% of the time is loving people and letting Jesus love people through you. That's walking in the Spirit. Can you do that? Of course you can do that. And this is what will change the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I thank you for preachers and evangelists and prophets. I thank you for all of these gifts. I thank you for miracles both big and little. I thank you, Lord, for, for the clergy. But Lord, our job is to help everybody walk in the Spirit and do the little things like driving a bus for Jesus or simply saying no to injustice and re refusing to change seats. Lord Jesus, help us to love where you have put us. Help us to hear your nudges and Spirit where we are. Help us, Lord, to be salt and light and mustard seeds. And if enough of us do it, Lord, the world will be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like the Kellys to come up. I'd like the intercessors to come up. We will pray for you about anything and everything. And again, I, I would like, you know, Mary, our our geese to to come to the front row again there is just she and her husband they, they have been apostles to nepal there are there are just unusual powerful gifts there if you want some one-on-one -on, -one on the front row with sister mary uh, I, i'm sure it will be worth your time so i'd like her to come up here so that if, if you really need special prayer that this there is a specially gifted person to do it and so, 
but others of us will pray with you. I'd like you to stand. And here's the last challenge before you leave this place. I want you to pick one, I want you to pray about and pick one person tomorrow to bless. It can be at your job, it can be in your family, it can be your neighbor. I want no one to leave here today without listening to the Spirit and picking someone to give an encouraging word to, to pray for, to be generous with. Listen to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. He's got work for you to do. Let's, uh, let's worship the Lord. The altar is open. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. your homework assignment. Uh, deacons will be checking on you this week. I'm, I'm kidding. We don't have enough deacons to check on you this week. Um, but please, 
try what you've heard today. It can revolutionize your spiritual life, okay? Again, if you want to stay for prayer with Mary, feel free to do that, but we're going to dismiss you now. Lord Jesus, bless us as we leave this place. Thank you that the kingdom is made up of us. Help us, Lord, to see our critical role in it. Help us to see, Lord, that our small and ordinary in your spirit changes the world. Amen.